Hey everyone, my name is OJ Tucker, host of the OJ Tucker podcast, the only comedy tennis podcast that talks about our political and societal culture as a whole. My name is OJ Tucker, as the name would suggest. Happy Tuesday. Hopefully you guys had a good weekend. Hopefully you guys spend it with your friends, your family, and watch some tennis along the way. So uh, there's a little bit of topics that we can get into for today. We can get into Federer's loss to Basilashvili. Uh, we could also talk about uh, the, or we could also recap the Bautista Agut Basalashvili final. And we can also talk about the Taylor Lorenz situation, the the Chris Harrison uh, declining to host the Bachelorette or uh, being told to screw off and not host the Bachelorette. And we can also talk about Bilber uh, you know, at the Grammys and how funny he was and how these individuals on Twitter, the Twitter mob tried to cancel him. Um, but I think we should start off with Dominic Team and his loss to Bautista Agut. So if you guys didn't uh, watch Doha uh, this past few days, uh, Dominic Team lost to Bautista Agut on Thursday, I would say. Uh, he lost 6-3, or sorry, 6-7, 6-2 in straight sets. Uh, obviously, the first set he lost 7-3 uh, in the tiebreaker. But... You know, there's a lot of speculation as to what will happen now. You know, I mean, he lost uh, fairly early. I mean, he could have gone to at least the final round. You know, people thought he would go to the finals. Uh, that was not the case for Dominic Team. But, you know, there's a lot of speculation as to what's next for him. You know, what is next for Dominic Team? And if I had to assume, I think he's just going to get better. You know, like I, for me, I am a Dominic Team fan through and through. I really like Dominic Team, and just because he lost Doha doesn't mean that he's gonna just splinter away, right? It doesn't mean that he's gonna, you know, have a horrible showing at his next Open or at his next Grand Slam or at or at his next tournament for that matter. I think he's gonna be in it, and I think he's gonna be very competitive. And, you know, one of the things that I've learned over the years while watching tennis is to never count people out just because they're uh, at a disadvantage. You know, I know on paper it looks pretty bad, you know, him losing to Bautista Agud. I don't think many people really had Bautista Agud as that person that would win uh, Doha, that would win the Qatar Open. But, you know, he's he really caught his stride uh, at, his, at those uh, final matches or, uh, or at those last matches. And he was able to win, you know, and you have to give give Bautista Agut uh, his his fair share. So, you know, I mean, Dominic Team really had a good uh, second game. I mean, he really, I mean, not second game, but second set. I mean, even though he lost 6-2 um, on that second set, I mean, his one-hand backhand was just electric. And, you know, he had unbelievable pace to it. You know, he was able to, he was able to break serve with it. And you know, if you catch him in stride, if you if you if you face Dominic Team, uh, and you 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 both have multiple rallies, then there's a good chance that you will lose with a one hand backhand or a one hand forehand or just a forehand in general with unbelievable pace at the ball. And that's what separates Dominic Team from the rest of them is his ability to be comfortable on the court and. And just try and be successful at all cost. You know, I mean, if you really look at it, or if you really have to break it down, uh, you would, I would say that Dominic Team's one hand backhand is awfully similar to that of Rafa Nadal's banana shot. 
right? Where it's just out of nowhere, he just brings it out. And when you see it in real time, it's like that that just makes all the difference in the world that it truly does. When you see that happening fruition, when you see individuals that are really competitive with it and like to be composed throughout the point and then just like hit a filthy shot out of nowhere. I mean, that's what separates defensive baseliners from individuals that are willing to not only be aggressive at the baseline, but are willing to even go near the net. And I think that if you're going to win, especially in today's era, you have to be comfortable by going near the net. And Bautista Gu was very, very comfortable going near the net. You know, you saw that uh, in his win against team. You saw that, uh, you know, even uh, with that loss against Basel Lashvili. It's going to be a pain in the ass to say his name. Like, it really is. Uh, my apologies in advance, but it's going to be extremely painful to say Basilashvili's name over and over and over again. It will. It's going to be extremely... Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, it's going to be hard for me to say. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that's what separates, you know, great great players from the not-so-great players is their ability to uh, go near the net and to be successful. And you saw that in that match against Bautista Agud. Bautista Agud uh, just had a number against team, and he was able to really be near the net to counter uh, his baseline play and even go after or really, you know, utilize team's unforced errors to Bautista's advantage. And, you know, I mean, hats off to Bautista Agud. I mean, he really had a, a really great showing, and... While I don't think he's going to be at that level as Zverev or as a Kyrgios, I think he has a lot to offer and he has a lot to prove. And you're going to see that in the next up-and-coming uh, tournaments. You know, I don't know if he's uh, registered to play at Monte Carlo, but if he plays at Monte Carlo, then I think he has the ability to have a great showing. Obviously, Do- Doha was a hard-court uh, tournament, and Monte Carlo is now clay. Obviously, it's been clay for as long as I can remember. But if he has if he has a similar stride, if he's able to play in a similar comparable style, then he has the ability to go far in Monte Carlo. So uh, those are just my general thoughts on Dominic Team's loss to Bautista Good. Uh, he's a great player, uh, Dominic Team, and uh, just because he lost doesn't mean it's the end of the world for him. Uh, it truly doesn't. So. Um, you know, those are just my thoughts on the matter. Dominic Team has a lot to, a lot at stake here, and um, you know, just because he lost doesn't mean it's the end of the world. Uh, it, what it does mean is that it sort of creates more of a divide between the old generation from the new generation. And uh, Zverev was talking about that, but we can get into Zverev's comments probably next uh, next episode. But uh, so, anyways, uh, Roger Federer. Uh, lost to Basilashvili 6-3-1-6-5-7 in a really competitive match. It was very competitive. I watched it. I think it was on Friday. Uh, a lot of has happened uh, over the weekend, but, um, you know, I mean, Roger Federer's loss to Basilashvili was just growing pains. I mean, it truly was. He got the first set 6-3, and by then you were like, okay, maybe this, maybe Federer's going to win in straight sets. Uh, maybe that second set will be, will be in a tiebreaker. Uh, but no, I mean, Basilashvili was able to win the second set, the third set, and was able to pull through with a victory. Um, so 
Roger Federer had a pretty good first set. You know, again, as I've said, as I've alluded to before, he had a really good first set. But the second set really showed how much more work Roger Federer needed to get back to where he originally was. And you saw it it with his footwork. You saw it with his inability to uh, go after points, to go after ground strokes. And he just seemed very lethargic on the court. I don't know what happened. Obviously, age will come uh, when it comes to, you know, baseline play but it, it didn't really feel like the roger that we've grown accustomed to right when you, when we think of roger we think of an individual that is from as soon as the as soon as the ball is tossed he's just in it to be as competitive as he humanly can be possible to do but when you saw him on court he was just very lethargic it felt as if he was just playing catch up as soon as that second set was starting. You know, it felt as if from that second set onward, it wasn't really, it didn't really feel like it was Federer's match to win. It, it felt more of a, it was a Basilashvili's match to win. And, and he was very slow to achieve points and he could barely break serve. You know, you could see that noticeably clear in that third set as well. So, I mean, there's, there was a lot of unforced errors in that second and third set. And, it felt as if there was like no durability on Federer's part. You know, it, it really felt as if there was no durability. And there was actually a, a tweet uh, by Matthew Willis, uh, where, which, and he basically stated, uh, "Very far from a bad loss week for Federer. Uh, got a lot of match practice in just two matches. Looked tired, understandably, after playing back-to-back competitive three-setters, coming in cold without match play for 400 plus days." Match fitness gonna take a while. Gonna good to have him back. <laughs> uh, I was gonna say gonna have to have him back. No, good to have him back, and he is right. I mean, it 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 felt like it as if, um, you know, it it felt as if he wasn't the Roger that we knew, and it's growing pains. You know, I mean, if he comes back and he plays at Monte Carlo, I don't think he's gonna have the same results as he had at Doha. Uh, if he comes back playing at the Miami Open, I, I'm pretty sure Federer said no to Miami Open, uh, then he has the ability to win the Miami Open. I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, you can't really discount Federer. You know, I mean, you really can't. You know, I mean, I remember a lot of uh, <laughs> when he lost that 2008 Wimbledon against Rafa Nadal. I mean, there was there were people like actual dumb people out there that were like, oh, maybe Rafa Nadal will win all the majors, you know? Maybe maybe there won't be any parity in the league. Maybe there won't be any parity in the sport of tennis. But, I mean, Federer has just proven all the naysayers wrong, and you got to give him the benefit of the, doubt, benefit of the doubt for that, you know? He is one of the, the best players to ever play the sport. Um, now, obviously, that may change with Joker uh, involved, but... I mean, he truly is a great tennis player. And, you know, simply saying that, oh, just because he's old doesn't mean, or just because he's old, that means he's no longer viable to win a major. I mean, that's completely being disingenuous and being dishonest. You know, there's a lot to him, you know, and I I think these next few majors, these next few uh, tournaments are really going to show Federer in a different light. They're going to show him more competitive. And, you know, maybe... Maybe it's the pizza because I know Federer loves pizza, but if he's able to limit his bread sugar intake, then I think he's going to be competitive. You know, apparently Federer loves pizza and uh, he, he eats it after matches and stuff. Uh, I wouldn't 
necessarily do that if I were Federer, especially at his age. Uh, definitely uh, lay low on the pizza, you know. <laughs> uh, but yeah, oh, those are just my uh, general thoughts on that uh, match. Uh, it was very interesting to see the dichot- or the dichotomy between Roger and Basilashvili, uh, because it really made Basilashvili uh, that much more potent against Bautista Agut, uh, which I'm going to talk about right now. So uh, Basilashvili faced off against Bautista Agut, and I don't really have the score in front of me. Uh, let me let me check first. Uh, first, okay, Bautista Agut. Obviously, Bautista Agut lost against uh, Basilashvili, uh, and I think it was in three sets. But uh, let me let me check it out first. Uh, Qatar Open. Um, yeah, I mean, so Basilashvili won against Bautista Agut straight sets, seven six, six two, and yeah, I mean, it was a great, it was a good match. You know, a lot of things were learned in that match. Uh, I mean, that first tiebreaker really dictated how the rest of the match would be. I mean, it felt as if Bautista uh, knew that the time would end for him in terms of uh, being at the Qatar Open and actually winning the Qatar Open. Uh, and that second set was all Basilashvili, and for good reason. Uh, my apologies if I'm butchering the name. I'm not that familiar with uh, uh, with uh, the, the country of Georgia, which Basilashvili is from. Uh, my apologies in, in advance. But... I mean, Basilashvili was amazing at the baseline. He, he was truly uh, diabolical at the baseline. He had a pace to his ground strokes. He got up to the net. And I don't think Basilashvili... I don't think... Let me let me reiterate this. Let me clarify this. I don't think Basilashvili will be that successful when it comes to tennis, right? I, I think there is a difference. There is a cognitive dissonance between a Basilashvili and a team between a Basilashvili and a Jonic Sinner. But it was a breath of fresh air to see, and I'm happy to see the younger generation really succeed and be successful at any which way they can. And, you know, I mean, he was just he was just dynamite, you know? I mean, there's not much else to say about that match besides uh, the fact that he was just so dynamite. Uh, he really had the ability to... Uh, showcase his talents and he did you know he really showcased his talents to the best of his advantage and when you see individuals uh, win at that level and first time winning at that level then it sort of gives you the confidence to see okay if, if a person like Basilashvili can win and be successful then just imagine what can happen to Medvedev and Tsitsipas and to, the other, to these other younger individuals that haven't really had the opportunity to showcase themselves, the Rublevs. Um, so I'm, I'm happy to see him win. Uh, it's great to see him do well and to see him succeed. Um, and, you know, hopefully that means the younger generation as a whole can succeed as well. Uh, because it's very important, it's very imperative that we see uh, competition and Hopefully, when it comes to Dubai, I know that there aren't any uh, older tennis players. There, I mean, the big four isn't playing, as far as I know. I mean, Federer, Murray, Djokovic, Nadal, they're not playing Dubai. So, I mean, this is their time to shine. It really is. Uh, and Basilashvili really had a good match. You know, I mean, he really had a good match. Uh, you got to give, give it to him for that uh, first set because... At times, it felt as if Bautista Agut would get the better of him. Uh, so, 
You know, 7-6, great, commendable score, competitive match. First set was competitive, second set not too much, not so much. Uh, it should have been 7-5 that second set, but overall, good match, good to watch. And um, I can't I can't wait to see what's in store for these two individuals, you know. Uh, great tennis players, and yeah, I, I, nothing much to say there. Great tennis players, and hopefully we can see more tennis play like that in the future. Uh, so, and this sort of gets into my final topic when it comes to tennis, and we'll get into the societal political culture as a whole, uh, part of it's Taylor Lorenz situation, uh, my weekly pick as well, Chris Harrison, uh, not hosting Bachelorette, and, uh, Bill Burr getting canceled for being funny, uh, but my, fa- my final tennis topic for today is essentially how good was the car, was the guitar open, and, I sort of leave this question open-ended because, you know, there's a lot of talk, there's a lot of discussion as to how good the Qatar Open was, and to be honest with you, I, I thought it was really good. You know, I mean, I really enjoyed it. It allowed the next generation to showcase their athletic prowess, their athletic talent, and it really, that, that Open really showed and held the mantle for what could be the future of tennis right and i I don't really say that lightly i think what it really showed was what could happen if you allow these younger players to be playing competitively without the big four without rafa without roger without andy and it really gave you a glimpse as to what the tennis world or just what what the sport of tennis could be without the big four without uh a person like a joker or without a Federer. And you got to give it up for them. You know, you really do. They had multiple epic rallies that really stand the test of time, not stand the test of time, but will definitely be a precursor for what to expect in the future tournaments. Uh, but, you know, they were also precise with their ball placement. You know, I mean, there are small holes that were really taken advantage by, by team, by Basilashvili, by, uh, Rublev, um, you know, I mean, you really have to give give them the respect for that, you know. And, you know, Bautista Gut, I don't know why I pointed this out, but uh, it's, it's very important to at least, like, at least talk about this. I mean, when you look at the younger tennis players, they're not as tall as, say, a Federer or a Nadal. I mean, Federer and Nadal, they're both like six, six, six foot tall, six foot one. Uh, Djokovic is around six foot tall as well. Um but when you look at Bautista Gut, and I, I know this is a very like sort of like semantic sort of argument with it, and maybe not necessarily noticeable, uh, but Bautista Gut is not that tall, right? Like he's he's really not that tall. And same with Harris, right? Like when uh, not Harris, but the person that Federer won against before Bautista Gut, he was also not that tall as well. But when you see him use that to his strength you know oftentimes when you're not a tall individual it could be often be to your disadvantage but when you see bautista good use it to his strength and use it to be more agile more mobile around the baseline and around the court and really add ground strokes and utilize key ground strokes to his areas it sort of gives you the awakening to say okay maybe this type of tennis can be encouraged uh further down and uh further uh later 
in these tournaments. You know, maybe you don't need to have a six foot five serve volley type such as Emilos Ronick or a John Isner. Maybe you can utilize being short and use it to your advantage. And if you're able to be competitive with it and bring more people into the sport and sustain yourself with multiple rallies, then all the power to you. And that's what Bautista Good really showed uh, was his ability to, again, uh, be an individual that can see it as a strength as opposed to a weakness, right? Because a lot of people will use it to a weakness and sort of add drop shots to bring him to the net uh, and then all of a sudden just lob it over his head <laughs> and, and sort of take it to uh, use that sort of tactic to to go after shorter tennis players. Uh, so, I mean, it was just, it was interesting to watch. It was interesting to see. And, you know, now that we're entering into Dubai, uh, we're going to see these older tennis players not necessarily play it because... They're playing for the appearance fee. You know, a lot of these tennis players at that stage and when it comes to smaller tournaments, they play for the appearance fee, uh, which, again, you know, I don't bash at all. I think if you're an older tennis player, you got to make your money whenever you make it. And, you know, because it is a fickle industry. So, I mean, make your money uh, however you make it. Uh, I'm totally in support of it. You know, if Dubai is not giving you a respectable, a commendable appearance fee, then you should definitely say no to that. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, I'm excited to see what's going to happen right now. The Dubai open is scheduled to play at around 6am today. Uh, so that's a little too, uh, early for me. Uh, but I'll watch it and hopefully our Ramanathan loses because I, I really hate that player. You know, I, I'm not a big fan of, uh, that South Indian tennis player. You know, I, I'm not, you know. Nothing against South India. You know, they're good people. Uh, way smarter than, say, good Jews or uh, Northern Indians. But, uh, yeah, I mean, R. Ramanathan is not that good of a player. I mean, he really isn't. And when I saw him complain uh, because somebody did an underarm serve, uh, that just sort of exacerbated my my utter discontent with him. It really did. So those are just my general opinions on it. Uh, it was a good open, and I think there's much to be desired uh, when it comes to these tournaments. And you know, when it came, when it came to the Qatar Open, um, it's sort of weird how how a great uh, country like Qatar was being sponsored by Exxon Mobil, right? It, it's like it's like the Nobel Peace Prize being nominated or being presented by Raytheon. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's sort of weird. It's like the, I don't know, it's like, I don't know, Universal Healthcare are sponsored by Pfizer. <laughs> you know, it's like, it makes no sense whatsoever. I mean, it's a, it's a quite juxtaposition, if you ask me. Quite a juxtaposition. Quite a juxtaposition. Uh, but anyways, those are just my opinions on the matter. And, um... Yeah, I mean, there's also some other tennis news we can get into, and I'll just speed, speed, quickly speed through this. Uh, congrats to Garbine Muguruza for winning Dubai. Obviously, that's great for her. Uh, hopefully, she can you know turn that into something uh, more special through a Grand Slam major or through a Grand Slam win. Also, shout out to Jeannie Bouchard 
even though she lost in straight sets at the final. I forget the final that she lost in, but uh, congrats to her as well. Uh, Medvedev is now ranked number two in the ATP ranker at the ATP ranking. So uh, congrats to him. And obviously, as I've alluded to before uh, earlier in the in the uh, earlier in the podcast, uh, I'll obviously talk about Sasha Zverev. Uh, Honest criticism, honest criticism of the ATP rankings, uh, in, in on Thursday's podcast. So go check that podcast out, and obviously I'll talk about Medvedev at number two and what it means for these younger players on Thursday's podcast as well. So that's about it for the tennis news. A lot has happened over the past four or five days since I last talked to you. So I thought it was a, a it was a little bit important to at least talk about this, and again to at least get a read on it and um, i'm excited for dubai you know it's going to be until saturday afternoon saturday sunday afternoon so you know it's it's good to see this happening in real time and you know i'm happy to see these younger players such as a schwartzman and shapovlov really get their just due and really compete for this because uh if you're not able to be successful amongst your peers then how will you be successful against the greatest of all time, you know, the Federers, the Nadal's, the Jokers, you know. So those are just my uh, thoughts on the matter, and uh, hopefully we can get more uh, interesting news out of it, you know. So, all right, so let's talk about this Taylor Lorenz situation. So if you guys don't know, Taylor Lorenz, and this is going to be a part of this, like, societal political aspect of our culture or of this podcast and I might, I might as well call this the cancel culture uh, fest, festival or cancel culture uh, a thon because these next two, three talks, we'll be talking about uh, individuals that are within the thick of, uh, of either instigating cancel culture or being the victims of cancel culture, which, I, again, it's not that pertinent of an issue. I, I wish we could spend more time talking about healthcare, uh, talking about uh, bringing troops home from Iraq and Afghanistan after a 20-plus year war. But unfortunately, this is what what is permeating the news, and I'll be remiss if I didn't at least acknowledge this. So, so Taylor Lorenz is a New York Times journalist, and I say journalist in quotes because I don't know what a journalist is anymore. Uh, the only journalists I know are either Glenn Greenwald or Matt Taibbi. That's about it. But Taylor Lorenz is a New York Times journalist, New York Times journalist who has been been getting criticism for harassing people on clubhouse and trying to monitor monitor speech on the platform and if you guys don't know what clubhouse is it's basically a bunch of vc tech individuals that might be uh abrupt my bad it's a bunch of uh people in uh venture capital and in tech uh and private equity basically uh, having a small echo chamber and uh, talking to indiv- individuals uh, on a private sort of messaging app. And uh, she's been trying to monitor speech on it. You know, she's been saying that it's uh, adjacent to like hate speech and how individuals uh, are not really being responsible on the app and how we need to monitor their speech and how uh, there should really be uh, added pressure to have uh, more awareness on the app and my genuine thoughts on the matter is that Taylor Lorenz should read 
or what what when I found out this information, it made me realize that Taylor Lorenz didn't really read Tyler the Creator's tweet on cancel or, or on cyberbullying, right? Like if she read Tyler the Creator's tweet on cyberbullying, she probably wouldn't tweet this out. And honestly, she 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 should just shut up, right? Like she should just be quiet about this because she clearly uh, has no connection uh, with the real world whatsoever, right? Because if what you consider on Clubhouse to be hate speech, and then just imagine what would be considered hate speech in the uh, inner city of a metropolitan area, right? In the in the inner cities of Chicago or New York or Boston, like if that's hate speech, then just imagine what would be considered hate speech in Southie, you know, and in areas that are affected by the uh, by the opioid epidemic, you know. You know, it's just, it's just a dumb culture war tweet. It, I mean, it's just a dumb culture war issue. It truly is. And I saw I saw Tim Dillon tweet about it, so I'm like, okay, I might as well at least talk about it a little bit, you know. And if, if you're going to go after hate speech, you might as well... Like, the only hate speech that comes from tech bros and venture capitalists is the hate speech that I see in clubhouse rooms when it comes to them trashing Peter Thiel's book Zero to None or the book Sapiens. Like that's the well, that's the only hate speech that's on the platform is them just trashing Peter Thiel, uh, and I'm sure most of them are on Peter Thiel payroll. Uh, but uh, that's the only hate speech I see is them just trashing Peter Thiel. And uh, some people may say rightfully so, others may say no. But uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> that's the only hate speech that's basically on the platform is just them trashing uh, books and literature that they've read that is often uh, within. Uh, the culture of tech bro or with, within the cultural zeitgeist of Silicon Valley. So yeah, uh, I thought I could just get my a uh, few of my opinions on that for the matter. And uh, this sort of leads me into my next topic about like, in the same vein of cancel culture. Again, Taylor Lorenz, dummy. I'm um, sure she's brought to you by the CIA. Uh, and when I look at her, I'm like, oh, that's a, that's a plant easily. That smile, that fakeness, that, uh, disingenuousness. Yeah. That's CIA. Uh, no doubt about it. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, Chris Harrison, uh, and I didn't watch the bachelor finale. I'm going to watch it later today. Uh, all I know is that Michelle gets dumped and that, uh, he tries to propose to Rachel, but I don't know what happens after. Maybe he dumps her. Maybe he keeps her. I'm not so sure. Uh, I have no idea, but uh, Chris Harrison has been let go by ABC uh, for host, uh, and he will not be hosting the After the Final Rose. He will not be hosting the Bachelorette. And if you guys don't know, Chris Harrison got in trouble uh, by for, for doing inter- an interview with Rachel Lindsay, where Rachel Lindsay brings up uh, the racist past of Rachel Kirknell, where it was seen uh, Rachel was taking pics at a Deep South wedding, and. It was a very antebellum style wedding that, you know, sort of harking back to the slave days, to the days of slavery. And um, he, he got fired for what he said about it. You know, he said something about like, oh, what Rachel did was in 2018, we got to know that it was a totally different era back in the day, which I probably would have answered it. If I was in Chris Harrison's shoes, obviously I'm not, but if I was in Chris Harrison's shoes, I'll probably answer it in a, a little bit better way, but... I, I thought it was a lukewarm take, not that bad, 
but apparently he got fired for it and uh, Bachelor Nation's going after him. And if I had to guess as to why they were going after him, uh, not Bachelor Nation, but if I had to guess as to why, <clears throat> if I had to guess as to why uh, ABC Disney decided to fire him, uh, it had to go, it had to deal with taking a few dollars off of the payroll, off of their payroll, right? I think it had to deal with that. And it was the perfect excuse for them to take a few dollars off of the payroll, right? Because Chris Harrison has been with ABC Disney. He's been with the Bachelor franchise ever since the inception of the franchise, ever since 2001, 2002. So if I had to guess, he's making a lot of money on the franchise. And they just wanted to save some money. So they they decided to let him go. And Chris Harrison made a lot of money off them off of that show and they really couldn't justify paying an exorbitant amount of money to chris harrison because they realized that they could get the same production at half the cost with with a person of color at the helm or with a woman at the helm you know it sort of reminded me a lot about megan kelly's comments or megan kelly's blackface comments which uh i don't know if they were really bad i have to watch it again uh, it didn't really seem like they were bad, but it sort of seemed like it was half and half. But I mean, Megyn Kelly was making a lot of money on that NBC show, and she wasn't really ma- getting the ratings for it. You know, she wasn't really getting the ratings that NBC Universal thought they would get for her. So those blackface comments were were the perfect were the perfect excuse to let her go and to uh, to you know focus on other things. You know. Megyn Kelly really wanted to be the next Oprah, and now she's trying to finagle her way into the intellectual dark web uh, with her podcast, the Megyn Kelly podcast or something like that. So, all right, let's get into some Bill Burr, uh, because I'm really interested in talking about this. Uh, Bill Burr uh, was getting canceled on Sunday afternoon uh, for for be, for presenting at the Grammys, for giving the nominations for the Grammys, and for uh, announcing the winners for several Grammy uh, categories and nominations. So Bill Burr was on stage. I think it was inter- introduced by Janae Aiko. I may be wrong. Correct me if I'm wrong. But Bill Burr was on stage, and he decided to, you know, have fun with it. I mean, he's a comedian. Uh, he's going to have fun with it. He was butchering several Latino Latina names. Uh, he, he apparently like he announced like a lot of Latino Latina nominations and uh, I don't know why the Grammys didn't like run this through and say hey maybe uh, maybe an Irish German dude from Boston probably doesn't have the ability to really say these names out loud uh, maybe we should help him I, I don't know why that thought didn't cross the Grammys nom- uh, that gr- the Grammy consideration but I mean Bill Burr did it to the best of his ability. He nominated, uh, he announced the nominations. He gave individuals the right to, you know, uh, acknowledge their award and to give their speech. And even when he screwed up with the names, he made it funny. He made it relatable. And, you know, when I watched him, I was like, it made it made me realize how, f- obviously, Bill Burr is one of the funniest individuals ever. I mean, he's, in my opinion, he is the funniest comedian right now. But when watching him, I was like, <laughs> the fact that he was able to make that funny that that just showed just how awesome he is when it comes to doing stand up but i saw individuals on twitter 
obviously Twitter, going after him saying, oh, why did a straight white male like Bill Burr sabotage the Grammys and make a complete buffoon out of himself? I'm like, first and foremost, the Grammys screwed over the Grammys, right? When, when, they, when they prioritize artists that are friendly to Target, or to the store target as opposed to artists that actually have genuine artistic talent that's when you screw up right like <laughs> that's when you screw up when you have justin bieber's yummy a horrible horrible song being nominated for the grammys that's when you screw up right so the fact that people are going after bill burr for not being woke and for not for not for tr treating the awards as an embarrassment. I mean, that's just dumb in and of itself. I mean, Bill Burr was probably the highlight of the Grammys. He made it funny. He made it enjoyable. He tried to say it to the best of his ability, and he's a great comedian. He's, in my opinion, he is the best comedian right now. Obviously, you know, people will say Chappelle. People will say Rogan. People will say Louis. I get it, but. Bill Burr, to me, after watching that SNL monologue, that set himself away from the competition, right? Because not many people can go to a neoliberal-friendly audience such as SNL, and obviously there's a there's a similar there's a similar pattern that I see between the SNL audience and the people that are trying to cancel him. I mean, there's a very similar I'm getting a very similar vibe from these two from these two groups, but. The fact that he was able to go to an SNL audience, which is completely in the same vein as like an Amy Klobuchar audience or an Elizabeth Warren audience, and was able to make it funny and make people laugh there and make people at home laugh and even, you know, create some sort of rift and contention between those who are laughing in the audience versus those who want to be like political, politically, politically correct. I mean, the man just knows what he's doing and... He's just awesome. He's he's one of the best comedians of all time. And just because a few people are trying to cancel him on Twitter doesn't mean that he's going to get effectively canceled. He's Bill Burr can never be canceled, right? He can never be canceled because he's actually, in a lot of ways, more woke than the people that are trying to cancel him. You know, he goes after the bankers. He goes after private uh, defense contractors. His audience is mostly black. I don't think people realize this, but his audience has a fair share of black people watching him and consuming his content. You really can't cancel Bill Burr. I mean, you really can't. I mean, the man supported Ralph Nader in 2000. The man supported Ron Paul in 2012. You can't cancel Bur Bill Burr at any moment in time. He is uncancelable. And, you know, his jokes, you know, resonate with a core group of people that are people of color, such as myself. I mean... I don't like to play the identity politics game. You know, obviously that's kind of stupid. But, I mean, his audience is mostly people of color. I mean, when he does shows in India, I'm not from India. I mean, my parents are from India. I'm from Boston. Uh, I'm from the same areas as Bill Burr is from. But, I mean, when he goes to India, he sells that, you know, the Habitat Comedy Club out. You know, he sells the, that comedy club out whenever he goes there. So, you can't cancel Bill Burr, man. You really can't. The man knows what he's doing. The man has built a grassroots support. And, you know, I'm happy to see him win. I'm happy to see him do well, you know, because that, that just makes me more competitive to create better jokes, to create better comedy and to create, uh, you know, a better five, uh, five minute set out there. You know, uh, if you guys don't know, I am a comedian. <laughs> I know that it's not that clear, but.
anyways um those are just my opinions on the cancel thing i wish we spend more time talking about actual pertinent issues such as maybe getting people out of the pandemic and out of the lockdowns and uh, focusing on uh healthcare and ending these wars overseas but you know that that's what happens when the powers that be want to talk about you know cancel culture because it completely it completely fits in line with sort of the parameters of what they want you know and also it gets you views as well when you talk about cancel culture <laughs> you know uh, anyways uh so my weekly pick you know every tuesday i, I recommend something whether it's art music uh an album a movie i try and recommend something and this week i'm going to recommend a song and that song is from mgk featuring corpse and the song is called daywalker so it's a great song if you really like horrorcore uh music if you really like uh hobson or tyler the creator i'm not a big fan of hobson but if you like bastard tyler the creator if you like goblin tyler the creator you'll really enjoy this song um it's sort of reminding me of that early blog rap era if you don't remember the blog rap era was between like the years 2009 to 2012 and it featured individuals like hobson and uh, tyler the creator as i was talking about earlier asap rocky's love live asap and it also also kid cuddy drake as well so if you like it's two dope boys you know if you like horrorcore rap music then you'll enjoy mgk i mean mgk has been on a tear you know i've uh, as i talked about in like the first early episodes of the podcast i loved mgk's tickets to my downfall it's one of my favorite albums of 2020 it's my most replayable album that i listen to all the time it, it's great and this song is just in the vein of that edgy horrorcore uh rap that was often prevalent in the early 2010s so if you like early 2010s off future go check it out and this style really worked for mgk's vocals i mean him yelling over this sort of serene beat this sort of noisy beat uh it, it really fits well and i can't wait to uh be a part of that mosh pit when things open up you know treat america like a mosh pit that's that's sort of my main takeaway with this podcast treat america like a mosh pit uh yeah i mean that song's great i mean the mosh pit will be uh, fire for that song you know uh as yeah that's anyway uh so anyways uh that's all the time i have uh guys thank you so much for watching thank you so much for tuning in make sure you subscribe to this podcast on youtube and also click the bell icon for notifications uh if you guys don't know i also have the video version on youtube if you're if you're listening to the audio version and with that comes another episode of the podcast so th guys thank you so much for watching thank you so much for tuning in uh i'll see you guys on thursday so by then we'll be talking about the dubai open we'll be talking about uh these younger players as well and we'll be talking about Sasha Zverev complaining about the ATP rankings as well as Medvedev getting the number two seeding uh, at the ATP. So guys, thank you so much for watching. And again, I will see you guys on Thursday. All right, guys. Peace. See y'all.